Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we're planning to help industry fuel switch to hydrogen. And when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Visit equinor.co.uk. The BBC, said the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, Norman Tebbit, in 2009, is another part of the destruction of Great Britain. If we have another Conservative government, then we can do something about it. And while, as with many things, Lord Tebbit is perhaps at the more extreme end of the spectrum on this, as you've maybe noticed, his is a sentiment not unshared by certain senior colleagues in and around the current Conservative government. Things were ratcheted up several notches this summer, when Boris Johnson demoted his BBC-bashing culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, a man who always looked like he was acting the part of right-wing culture warrior, and replaced him with the real deal in Nadine Dorries. Dorries, as you probably know, is a long-standing and vehement critic of the BBC, only recently describing it as a biased left-wing organisation. True to form, in her first big outing as culture secretary at the Tory party conference last month, she told Chopper's Politics podcast that the BBC is guilty of elitism, of a snobbish approach to recruiting staff, and demanded real change at the top of the organisation. And I want to see from organisations like the BBC what they're going to do to change. It's just about having a more fair approach and a less elitist and a less snobbish approach as to who works for you. And Her aides complain of liberal bias, not so much in the BBC's news coverage, but in the views casually thrown out by high-profile presenters, by its choice of dramas and their scripting, by its easy dismissal of certain government priorities, and more. These are long-standing complaints of a certain wing of the Conservative Party, of course, and their grievances with which Dorry's boss, the Prime Minister, agrees. And during the last election campaign... He hinted he'd like to abolish the licence fee altogether. Uh, You have to ask yourself whether that kind of approach to funding a media organisation still makes sense in the long term. Now, sadly for Boris, he doesn't have the power to do that. Or not, at least, until the BBC charter comes up for renewal in 2027, if he can hang on to his job that long. But he does have the power to appoint former Tory donors and indeed former Tory spin doctors to the all-powerful BBC board both of which he's done over recent months. And another lever of power sits tantalisingly before the Prime Minister and his Culture Secretary as I record this podcast. A crucial decision is imminent about the next licence fee settlement, the process through which Dorries effectively sets the BBC's budget for the coming years. It's probably no coincidence that with this big announcement pending, the BBC Director-General, Tim Davey, decided now might be a useful time to unveil a tough new strategy on BBC impartiality. Worryingly for the BBC, all of this is only one side of the story. There's another whole tranche of opinion on the left in this country, which sees the BBC as something completely different, but equally insidious, too close to the government, too enthralled to orthodoxy, awash with establishment cronies and well-heeled Tory sympathisers. But regardless of whether you think Dorries and Johnson have a point about the BBC, 
Or indeed, whether you think their attacks are part of some right-wing Brexity plot to destroy our national broadcaster. It's worth bearing in mind that government-BBC relations have always been tense, occasionally absolutely awful, and frequently much worse than they are today. From the censorship of the World War II years... All live programmes had somebody sitting there with his finger, quite literally, on the button. ...to the anti-BBC paranoia of Harold Wilson's administration. No, the relationship wasn't a happy one. From absolute meltdown over the Iraq war dossier, sexed up or otherwise. People were under pressure, people lost their jobs over it. To the maelstrom of the Brexit campaign and all that's happened since. I think they've got themselves rather tied in knots on that. The BBC and the government of the day have clashed time and time again, regardless of who's been in power. So as the corporation prepares for its 100th anniversary celebrations next year, I thought it'd be fun to explore the relationship between these two great monoliths of our public life. Why do these clashes keep happening? Are things really worse now than they've been before? And if the BBC is taking flack from both sides, does that actually mean it's getting things just about right? Or is that simplistic nonsense from yet another MSM shill? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're exploring the century-long war between the government and the BBC and asking why these two great British institutions can't quite seem to get along. In the beginning, there was John Reith. I felt strongly that it should be turned into a public corporation, the first of its kind, and... uh, There was opposition to that. The BBC's first Director-General was in his early 30s and had zero broadcast experience when he was handed control of the newly formed British Broadcasting Company in 1922. He was a tiny, privately owned radio broadcaster with 35,000 listeners and a grand total of four employees. But under Reith, expansion was rapid. Within four years, he'd employed nearly 800 staff, with more than two million radio licences having been issued. He'd also successfully lobbied for the BBC to be taken into public ownership, while surviving the first of many big clashes with the government. Right from the start, the BBC had a rather complicated relationship with government, but was not subservient to it. And discovering what that meant was a kind of the work of the 1920s and 30s, which then stood it in good stead in the Second World War. This is Jean Seaton, Professor of Media History at the University of Westminster and one of the official historians of the BBC. She highlights the general strike of 1926 as the first big flashpoint between the Beeb and the government, at the time a Tory administration, with Chancellor Winston Churchill as its chief attack dog. Churchill piled enormous pressure on the BBC to push the government view that the strikes were subversive and that unions must get back to work. Equally, Labour and trade union leaders were outraged that Reith, under pressure from Number 10, had denied them a platform to put their own views across. In the end, the BBC sort of said it was for the government at a time of crisis. Nevertheless, it gave far more fair reporting of both sides of the general strike than Churchill 
than the government, than any of the newspapers would have sanctioned. So it established in that moment of crisis that although in some sense it related to the government, its duty was to the British public. And it frankly built a huge sudden new audience because the BBC was the only place you could go to hear actually what was happening. But while the BBC's news output is today a central part of its offering, in those early years, that was far from the case. It had gone through an extraordinary and dramatic transformation since its foundation and really made itself the heart of entertainment, of drama, of music. What it didn't do very well, or very much of, was news. This is Edward Sturton, the veteran BBC presenter who's written a book, Auntie's War, about the Beeb's activities during World War II. The newspapers were always all worried that it would knock off their sales and they fought a very effective lobbying campaign and during most of the 1930s the BBC wasn't allowed to broadcast any news until early in the evening at all. It had no reporters until Richard Dimbleby joined in the late 1930s. The big crucial change though came with the Munich crisis when suddenly people wanted information about this very fast-moving event and the BBC stepped up to the plate. And with a major news event like Munich obviously was, would the BBC have had the same commitment to impartiality that it has now? Well, I think impartiality is perhaps not the right word to use about the BBC at that period. No one, for example, was saying, let's hear what Mr Churchill has got to say and then let's balance it with what Mr Hitler has got to say. We all wanted to win. Everybody who was working for the BBC then was committed to resisting Germany. At the same time, there is a famous memo written by the news editor in September 1939, right at the beginning of the war, which was distributed throughout the news department. He was called R.T. Clark, and he said, It seems to me that the only way to strengthen the morale of the people whose morale is worth strengthening is to tell them the truth, and nothing but the truth, even if the truth is horrible. Now, that was a great declaration, and it did serve as a kind of lodestar of the way BBC people operated during the war. But it wasn't easy. I mean, they had to fight a constant battle to realise that ambition. Within Whitehall and Downing Street, was the same view shared in that the start of the war period that the BBC should be broadcasting the truth and nothing but? Well, you won't be surprised here that it wasn't. Although, if you go back to just before the war, there was a very interesting debate that went on about the degree to which the BBC should be controlled by the government. And it was driven partly by a recognition that if it was going to be effective, it needed to be trusted. So simply taking over the whole ship and telling it what to do wasn't going to work because people wouldn't buy the messages they heard on the BBC if they knew that that was what was happening. And that means allowing them a degree of independence so that people can trust it? It means, crucially, that they should believe the news. And there was a great deal of scepticism 
in the public about what they were hearing. One of the most famous reports is uh, a description that a correspondent called Charles Gardner gave of a dogfight over the Channel during the early days of the Battle of Britain. He was there with his recording equipment on the seafront, and he described almost as if he was talking about a football match, the dogfight going on in the sky and the way the German planes were trying to bomb ships. In flames. Somebody's hit a German, and he's coming down. There's a long streak. He's a Junkers 87, and he's going slap into the sea, and there he goes, smash! Terrific. The BBC conducted a study of what people had liked about it afterwards, and one of the things that came across was people said, well... Because he was commentating live on action like that, he can't have been spun. He must have been telling the truth. So there was that residual cynicism there about what people heard. So in 1941, the battle against the perception of fake news was every bit as important as it is today. Nevertheless, the BBC was hardly giving a fulsome picture of every twist and turn of the war. In that sort of early period of the war, and I'm thinking particularly of Dunkirk, there was a lot of censorship going on. They certainly didn't admit that the evacuation of the British army had begun until long after most of the troops were already back in Britain. And you can see in the new scripts the hand of the censor going through and saying, you know, could you make this story a bit more cheerful and could you emphasise the discipline of British troops at this stage? And just talk us through the actual process of that. What, the bulletins would be sent off to a censor before they were read out, would they? No, there was an institution called the Ministry of Information, which lived in the Senate House of London University, which in theory was in control of the BBC. But the actual task of censorship was delegated to the BBC itself. There were messages coming in all the time from the Ministry of Information, but the actual censors were BBC staff because they were, as I say, they were on side. We, they wanted to win the war, so they were quite sort of comfortable doing that. There was an extreme system called the switch censor. All live programmes had somebody sitting there with his finger quite literally on the button, and he could take the whole network off the air if he felt that something dangerous was being said. But that was very seldom actually used. I think the only case of it I came across was a left-wing clergyman who was thought to be being a bit Marxist in one of his talks. Nevertheless, Churchill was not a massive fan of the BBC on a personal level. Was there friction there during the war years once he was Prime Minister? Yes, he felt that the BBC had not given him enough attention during the 1930s when he was beginning to sound the warning bells about what was happening in Germany. He hated Lord Reith, the great founder of the BBC, who he, who was very tall, and um, uh, Churchill referred to him as the withering height. That said, once he recognised the value of it, he used it pretty enthusiastically. Things like his first extraordinary speech to occupied France late in 1940. And there's a wonderful account of how he trained to make that speech in French, but he resisted too many attempts to make him uh, have a good French accent because he said they wouldn't trust him if he wasn't a bit Churchillian. Allons, bonne nuit. Dormez bien, rassemblez vos forces pour l'aube. And of course he would regularly address the nation using the BBC. Well, there's some interesting sort of curiosities about that. For example, the famous Fight Them on the Beaches speech he made in Parliament. It was never actually 
broadcast as a BBC speech. And the version we're all familiar with today is one that was actually recorded by him for a record much later in the 1940s. And yet so many people claim to remember hearing him make that speech on the wireless, which I think tells you something about the way his words are so rooted in people's sense of what the war was like and, and why we won it. Um, that they imagine they heard something that they they actually, the they actually didn't. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing. Did ground. it get easier for the BBC as the balance shifted and Britain was suddenly clearly on the winning side towards the end of the war? Well, it's obviously much easier to broadcast the truth when the truth is good news. So as the war went on and more and more British victories were notched up, yes, that made the BBC's task much easier and tensions with the government much less. It also mattered hugely in occupied Europe, where especially in France, people listened very, very closely because they trusted it and they believed that what they were hearing was accurate. So the better the news became, the more effective that was as a weapon of soft power. The BBC was also being used to transmit secret messages to local resistance groups. So in the middle of the news, you'd get a completely obscure and weird bit of poetry or something. And it was not at all clear what it meant, but it would be an instruction to a local resistance group to blow up a refinery or something of that kind. These early foreign language transmissions became the basis for the much broader post-war broadcasting we now know as the World Service. Indeed, the BBC remained an essential arm of the government's overseas soft power throughout the Cold War period, even involving itself in the notorious British and American-backed coup d'etat in Iran in 1953, when BBC Persia agreed to broadcast a code word which triggered the overthrow of a democratically elected government. But on the domestic front, this happy symbiosis between Downing Street and the BBC would not survive for long. After the break, we'll look at some of the most combustious clashes between ministers and the BBC in the post-war era and assess the ongoing friction which marks the relationship today. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. Is H2O the industrial emission of the future? At Equinor, we believe so. That's because when hydrogen is used as fuel, its only emission is water. Our H2H Salt End project is planning to bring hydrogen power to the Humber, the UK's most carbon-intensive industrial cluster. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. Most of the angriest clashes between the BBC and our political leaders are over the way the Beeb reports the news. But every now and then, the BBC makes its own TV show or documentary so contentious that it becomes a huge political news story in its own right. The most notorious case was a 1971 BBC documentary featuring interviews with the recently ousted former Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, and most of his shadow cabinet. Is it proper for a man who hopes one day again to be Prime Minister to write in the way that you have, in particular, about the civil service? I don't think I've been rougher with uh, civil servants in what I've written in public, and I'll stand my corner on it. And after all, people can write to the press if they disagree, as they do. 
Labour had apparently been told the film would be a straight documentary called Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition, and so agreed to take part. Instead, the show went out with the rather brutal title Yesterday's Men, and featured highly aggressive interviewing and a specially commissioned song parodying their plight in opposition. Wilson went bananas. The relationship wasn't a happy one. You only got to watch it to see that if you were Labour, you'd think it was anti-Labour. Gene Seaton. Wilson thought that he was parodied in comedy shows. He's not happy with it. It's a tense relationship. When Labour returned to power in 1974, Wilson and his successor as Prime Minister, Jim Callaghan, both remained deeply suspicious of the BBC and its coverage and frequently discussed axing the licence fee altogether. The Labour government gets more and more anxious about how the BBC is portraying it and Callaghan, you know, issues all sorts of threats. The person who issues the most threats is Tony Wedgwood-Ben, who wants to have the governors elected. He wants to change the constitution. He wanted to enhance ITV. But then he's out of power and he goes away and none of those ideas are in fact embodied. In 1979, of course, the whole of the Labour Party were ousted from power. But Margaret Thatcher's incoming Conservative regime had no love for the BBC either. She had one very simple idea that the market was better than everything else. And she thought that the BBC should have ads. And this would have been very stupid. The group that really didn't want the BBC to have ads were the advertisers because they knew the BBC would be very expensive. The next group that really didn't want the BBC to have ads was commercial television, because they thought the BBC would take all their ads away. The only person that thought ads were a good idea was Mrs Thatcher. And she set up a committee chaired by a man called Peacock, and they went away and deliberated, and came back and said it would be very stupid to have ads on the telly. (laughs) And it doesn't make sense, because the market for public service broadcasting lies in the competition for making better programmes, and it serves the public better than anything else. Thwarted on the licence fee, Thatcher trained her attention instead on the BBC's political output. One of her chief bones of contention was one she shared with Harold Wilson, the way the BBC was covering violent unrest in Northern Ireland. Both governments and broadcasters grappled with... The victim was again an off-duty member of the security forces. A A great deal of violence between 1970 and 1973, just a couple of years. You know, nearly 2,000 people were killed in Belfast and around. How do you report that back into London and Scotland? How do you report it in Northern Ireland itself? The government thinks that every time the BBC, for instance puts people with real power on the streets in Belfast, which seems to me it's public service duty, onto the screen, it's giving them the oxygen of publicity. And indeed, in 1979, basically, the Conservatives and Labour, and this becomes even more lethal for the BBC, arrive at a bipartisan sort of agreement about how they'll behave over Northern Ireland, And then the BBC's got nowhere to go. If it wants to report the opposition to the government point of view, then the Labour Party isn't giving an opposition. So it looks as if it's the opposition, even though all it's doing is doing fair reporting. And that produces 
endless clashes, endless rows, and finally results in the 1987 broadcasting ban, which was that you could see Sinn Féin representatives, but their voices had to be dubbed by an actor. Are you saying there's no more that the IRA can say in response to that? I don't speak for the IRA. I don't. Well, if Mr. Major, as he should be doing anyway, wants to commence discussions with me or people who represent the party which I lead, we will start. Thatcher also clashed with the broadcaster repeatedly over its coverage of the Falklands War, which she felt should have done more to push the British point of view. Well, I mean, Margaret Thatcher was certainly critical of the way in which the BBC initially approached the Falklands War. This is Thatcher's political secretary from the 1980s, John Whittingdale. She felt the BBC was insufficiently patriotic. I mean, that's something which the BBC would argue that maybe that's, they shouldn't be. But certainly she had quite strong criticisms and she appointed Stuart Young as chairman of the BBC very early on and then felt that he'd sort of gone native within just a few weeks of walking through the door. Thatcher had wanted a chairman who would rein in the then Director-General, Alistair Milne. When Young's term in office was cut short by cancer, she relaunched her search. The person that was come up with was a man called Marmaduke Hussey, who'd been the sort of managing director of Times newspaper when it was on strike for a year. Famously, and I discovered this, Mrs Thatcher phoned up Rupert Murdoch and said, ''Shall I appoint Dukey? Is he a good thing?'' And Rupert Murdoch said, sure, he's a good thing. So you get the Murdoch-approved, Thatcher-approved chair. Actually, and people would dispute this, but in fact, Hussey was rather a great chair. He reformed the board, he got more intelligent people on it, and he did definitely sack Milne. But Milne had clearly misled the board over Northern Ireland. It's hardly surprising, in retrospect, that the combative and free-market-loving Margaret Thatcher would involve herself in so many high-profile clashes with the state broadcaster. Surely, though, things would improve under the slick, media-focused and state-loving new Labour government of Tony Blair, right? Right? At six o'clock, Lord Hutton slams the BBC. Taking the blame, the corporation's chairman, Gavin Davis, has resigned. There were no errors of fact in the WMD dossier in September 2006. The, the Niger source was nothing Excuse to me. do with us. Get your facts right before you make serious... Lord Hutton is utterly unsparing in his criticism of the BBC, from its reporter Andrew Gilligan and his unfounded allegation to its defective editorial control... I mean, of course, people were under pressure and people lost their jobs over it. Very senior people lost their jobs over it. This, again, is Edward Sturton, who was working as a Radio 4 Today programme presenter in 2003 when the fateful news report on Alistair Campbell's dodgy dossier went out. The funny thing is that as a broadcaster, I don't remember feeling under pressure. The climate in the Today newsroom then and I suspect today, is pretty robust. I think there is still a very strong sense of of what we're trying to do and of not being frightened, actually. And if you think of it, you know, sort of Humphreys and Nocte and you know, Sarah and co, they're not shrinking violets. <laughs> so, so, of course, the BBC was under enormous pressure then, but I don't think... I, I, I never felt it in the studio, put it that way. What's fascinating today is that, for the most part, the mood among BBC journalists feels much the same. 
For all the political storms raging around the corporation, if you speak privately to senior BBC hacks, you'll hear no complaints about undue pressure being applied on their coverage. And that's been throughout a turbulent period where the mood between the Tory administration and the Beeb has at times felt as bad as it's ever been. An onslaught from Eurosceptic Conservatives, which had rumbled along in the background for years, picked up steam during the 2016 EU referendum and has gone into overdrive since Boris Johnson assumed power. Well, I think the BBC themselves have recognised that there have been times when they have failed to be sufficiently objective and to cover all viewpoints. The former culture secretary and Brexit campaigner, John Whittingdale. I don't believe that the BBC is politically partisan. However, I think in the past, the BBC has been guilty of a sort of groupthink, of there being a a single mindset, so that in the sort of mind of the BBC, all right-thinking and sensible people take a certain view and anybody who takes a different view is somehow out on a limb or an extremist. And you've seen examples of that in the way in which I think the BBC failed to properly recognise the extent to which there was very strong feeling amongst the public around issues like immigration, like Europe, that too often they have failed to give proper recognition of different viewpoints. During the 2016 campaign itself, Vote Leave officials felt they'd need to apply significant pressure on the BBC to ensure they received their fair share of coverage. Here's the campaign's director of comms, Paul Stevenson, speaking on an earlier episode of this podcast back in June. We recorded every single interview on major bulletin programmes, so the 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock today programme, and also the big interview slots, the Mars and so on. And every couple of weeks, Lee Kane, who was then head of broadcast, sent a report to everyone at the BBC, everyone at the ITV and Channel 4, senior executives, which said, this week you've given the Remain campaign this many hours and us this many hours. And at the start, the difference was pretty stark. And by the end, things started to level up a bit. And that was just simply a factual reporting. And what was interesting in 2016 was that once again, the BBC found it was getting in the neck from both sides. His Remain campaign spin doctor and former BBC journo, Craig Oliver, speaking on the same edition of Westminster Insider back in June. Well, you've got to remember, I was editor of the 6 and 10 o'clock news for the BBC, so I know how difficult it is when you are pressurised by both sides and you're trying to be an honest broker in that. I think that the BBC really, really does sometimes struggle with the concept of impartiality. They often mistake balance for impartiality. And I know for a fact, because I've spoken to a lot of editorial figures at the BBC, that during the referendum campaign, they felt that they were effectively doing a one day it's a leave story, the next day it's a remain story that is the lead. And I think they got themselves rather tied in knots on that. I think they ended up, because of that, doing lead stories that actually, if they really, really thought about it, really weren't good. Now, it's pretty obvious that any supposedly neutral broadcaster trying to cover something as divisive as the Brexit referendum was going to take some flack. So I asked Katie Searle, the BBC's executive editor of politics, who oversees political coverage right across the corporation, whether being criticised by both sides means they're broadly in the right place. 
if people are shouting loudly from both sides, you know, you're probably somewhere in the right sense. But I don't think we should be comfortable just saying if everyone's shouting, we're okay. You know, I think we need to be a lot more sophisticated than that. Brexit was incredibly challenging, of course, from the principle of the idea and dealing with that principle of whether this was something that was actually going to happen. But also, when you looked at the party breakup, I think one of the most challenging things for us was not only was it a kind of... um, yes no argument but it was cross-party so you were then looking at how you approach the coverage with kind of I suppose almost an extra layer you know put on top of all of that and so well if you've got you know you've got someone from that side that other person that you might think naturally would balance that argument isn't actually the right person so how do you do that? Do you think the BBC got it about right as you look back on it? Are the criticisms you would agree with in retrospect? Because I guess it was a learning experience for everyone. Something. Yeah, like that. I mean, I'm, I don't think I'd be as arrogant to say that we got absolutely everything right because I don't think anyone really does. You know, I think we tried very, very hard to make the decisions along the way to represent what we thought was going on in the country. And also the campaign changed. And there's a real challenge again about, you know, really understanding what's going on across the country and reporting it from Westminster. You've got the air cover, George Osborne and Dominic Cummings down here, you know, and you've got actually the real the real country. And how do they sit on top of each other, as it were? Which I think is true of any campaign, actually, whether it's a referendum or whether it's an election. One of the criticisms that's obviously been thrown at the BBC a lot is that it's too London-centric and, and doesn't really understand what's happening in the country. Do you accept some of that? And is there anything you can do to address that? We do have a actual political correspondent based in in the Midlands but in the end Westminster is Westminster and you've got to do that job properly but that's not to say you don't report the rest of the country as well you know so how do you do both you know it's about getting around the country and making sure that you're hearing from those voices and actually a lot of the change that the BBC is looking at doing at the moment is looking at recruiting jobs around the UK to do that it's long overdue because we need to reflect our audience much better and that's kind of absolutely crucial to our survival. I want to hear a little bit about what it's like dealing with particularly the government, but I guess political operatives on all sides. I was many moons ago a political editor of a newspaper, and I used to spend half my time fielding angry calls from spin doctors in either party about how we'd covered something or how we ought to be covering something or how we hadn't covered something. I assume you must get an awful lot of that in your job. Yeah, there there is a considerable amount, although it ebbs and flows, actually. So in this job that I've done just over seven years, I think I've had seven directors of communications at Downing Street, and they all start off wanting to be Malcolm Tucker, and then they evolve. It often starts with the Radio 4 headlines at 6am, because that's when they're listening, of all parties, but it is mostly, in truth, government who are on to me then. You go through periods where it can be very intense. I mean, obviously, in the last few years, with all the elections and campaigns and stuff. I think, you know, it's important to listen and reflect and and just judge whether you think they've got a point, really. And, you know, having gone through seven in seven years, I'm not intimidated <laughs> by that. You know, it's, it's fine. It's, you know, I think they're doing their job and I'm doing mine. The shouting is only at one level. You know, you've got to kind of get it down to a level where you can have a relationship that works. And sometimes we're going to really disagree. And sometimes if I think there's an error, we'll think about correcting that. And what sort of thing... Are they complaining about? Is it the tone of something? Is it the order of stories? Is it? To be honest, it can be anything, Jack. So last week, there was you know a number of very loud calls after the six o'clock news about a word that was used in an introduction to a piece, and you know it got quite serious from a number of different people who were outraged by it. And that's one word, and it's one word that you could consider 
actually, you know, that it was okay. But from their perspective, it absolutely was not. You know, so it absolutely can be a running order thing. So if they feel that the BBC has led on something that they think is particularly critical of the government and maybe unfairly from their perspective, or sometimes it's, well, this is the third day in the row you've had a go at this. It can be tone, definitely. I mean, there's often a, well, that was a bit sneery, you know. Um, Or as I say just now, it can be one single word they feel is a really loaded expression. And in that case, you know, we, as I did that day, spoke to the editor of Six Court News, we talk it over and we can make an adjustment or not. And it is really serious. You know, the Six Court News is still watched by four to five million people a, a night. It's a very big influential programme, despite all our changes in habits. So you can sort of understand from any party's perspective why they want to shout and scream if they feel they're unfairly represented. Up until April of last year, one of those people, perhaps not screaming and shouting, but certainly arguing his corner, was James Schneider, who worked as Jeremy Corbyn's head of strategic comms while he was leader of the Labour Party. It's hardly a secret that relations between Team Corbyn and the Beeb were frequently atrocious, with some BBC figures privately accusing the Labour leadership of fueling aggression towards their journalists and with the Corbynistas convinced the BBC coverage was biased against them. I think there are probably two structural reasons why the BBC struggles to be impartial. The first is undue government influence. The government of the day can appoint the chair of the BBC. Boris Johnson has appointed a former Tory donor, who used to be Rishi Sunak's boss, to be the chair of the BBC. And in addition to that, every few years there's the charter renewal. And in that process, the government of the day can put pressure generally indirectly onto the BBC. So the first thing is the government has too much power. The second is that the BBC as an institution, especially its political output and its economic output, has a massive status quo bias. So the same reason why Vote Leave people would have been angry with how the BBC covered some of their things and didn't take what they were saying so seriously, you get the same issue on the left because socialist ideas, the kind of policies that we were putting forward in the 2017 and 2019 manifestos, although they are right in the mainstream of British public opinion, when you look at polling, they're well outside the kind of framework that political journalists have grown up with and BBC executives have grown up with. And so there is a bias towards a kind of pro-liberal, pro-market position. And is it inevitable that a broadcaster that is trying to reflect broadly where, I guess, the norms of of a political conversation are, that inevitably then, when something comes from outside of those norms, like Brexit or like Corbyn, that inevitably this is going to happen and keep happening? Well, the problem is the broadcaster shouldn't be enforcing norms which aren't where the majority of the public are. At times, it seems like the BBC is defending the status quo rather than reporting on a range of things. Now, of course, I'm, this is not to say that this is what all BBC journalists do. It's not to say that the BBC doesn't have very good output as well. But I would say, in my experience with Corbyn, there were not very many political journalists who made a real effort to try to understand what we were doing on its own terms. 
You know, you don't have to say this is right or will be good for the country or anything like that at all, but to try to explain it on the terms that it is putting itself forward rather than treating everything like it's some mad breach from the side. Can we talk about any concrete examples? Do things spring to mind about the way the BBC reported on Jeremy Corbyn that you were particularly upset about? You know, just picking a a, a random example, we struggled to get the Today programme which you know, has this outsized influence in shaping today's agenda, to take some of our policy announcements seriously and, and cover them at all, especially when they're things which were you know, outside the basic life world of your average Today programme producer. So, you know, bus travel for younger people outside of London, you know, not really something that you know, most Today programme staff are you know, that bothered by, but pretty big issue in the country. So we you know, have things like that where we put forward policies that were new and were newsy and we would struggle to get them picked up. I asked Katie Searle to explain what impartiality means at the sharp end of the BBC's political reporting. We always call it due impartiality, which I'm not sure whether that means anything to <laughs> listeners really. But I suppose if I had to kind of break that down, what does it mean? It means kind of in the balance of argument, where the argument lies. So the most sort of obvious example there is climate change. So on balance, most people think there is a problem with climate change. So you would approach it like that. So in other words, you don't have to be 50-50 on everything, but you have to be within the range of balance of what would be accepted argument on that. It's interesting you mentioned that example. I seem to remember some years ago there being concern that the way that the BBC was covering climate change was essentially, here's someone who says it's a problem and here's someone who says it's not. So has that thinking sort of evolved? I think that's right. And I think there are lots of subjects. Climate's the most extreme, but there are loads of subjects where we would weigh up the kind of balance of discussion around it. No one's got a pen and paper out with a ruler sort of saying 50% one side and 50% the other. But, you know, in broad terms, you're reflecting the broad debate. I'm trying to think of other examples, but maybe in health or, you know, obesity or smoking the balance of argument would be that people would be in a particular area of it and then you'd approach it from that perspective so something like brexit was that was quite a fringe idea only 10 years ago wasn't it there wasn't really a big debate in this country about britain actually leaving the eu so i suppose at that point the bbc wouldn't be seeing it as something where you needed to cover both sides in an equal way as became the case as the sort of last decade went on yeah, I mean, from memory, really, quite quickly became that. I mean, you're right, obviously, the argument around the European Union and whether we were going to leave or not was, has been as long debated as we can remember. But I think with Brexit, once it became a thing, once it became clear that it was going to dominate the political agenda, that was, you know, as important as it could ever be, really. Still, it's notable that two of the things the BBC really gets criticised for, its coverage of Brexit from the right and of Jeremy Corbyn from the left, were both pretty radical ideas which suddenly came into the mainstream from outside the balance of argument which Katie described. I asked the veteran BBC journalist Edward Sturton if he thinks the corporation struggles with due impartiality when covering left-field issues which swiftly become mainstream. I think think, think that's a perfectly fair criticism or comment, and I think the Brexit example is a very good one, and, you know, it's something we've been wrestling with ever since. You have a sort of man on the Clapham omnibus in your head. Do you know what I mean? You, you know what's 
generally thought to be reasonable, what's what's in within the band of mainstream opinion. And then something like Brexit happens and you realise that there is something there that is mainstream that you thought was, was outside the band. And that's really, really difficult to deal with, you know, when you're trying to balance things, because so much of it is instinct and a feeling for what your listeners or viewers are going to be thinking and how they'll respond to what you say. So I think that's a perfectly fair comment. It's to some extent inevitable in the role of a national broadcaster where, you know, you are always trying to speak from the middle to a degree. I don't think there's an easy solution to that, though, to be honest. And I think I'd probably rather a BBC that's a little bit reluctant to go out on a limb rather than the reverse. But, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a fair point. The criticism that's led from it, as you, you, you'll be all too aware, is that the BBC is too out of touch, it's too metropolitan. You've been there for such a long time. Is there some truth in those criticisms that you hear? I don't think that is true, actually. I mean, when you say metropolitan, one of the great strengths of the BBC is that it's got correspondence all over the world. And that seems to be much more important than having correspondence all over Britain. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think I think I accept the argument that we, to some extent, should reflect the nation that we broadcast to. But I think more important than that is telling people things that they don't yet know, that they ought to know, and that they, you know, will be interested in when they do know. So cosmopolitan, if you like, I'm sure that's true. But that's sort of our job. And last one, um, the... BBC has been under a huge amount of pressure politically for the last few years, I would say. Is this been the rockiest period for the BBC that you've experienced in terms of the political pressure it's come under? Well, I, yes, but I think because of the divided nature of the the country that we've been talking about, I think that's what makes it so difficult. I mean, there have, of course, been lots of other occasions where the BBC and the government haven't been at one. You mentioned the Iraq uh, war and the conflict with the Labour government then, Margaret Thatcher and the BBC during the Falklands. But usually in the past, the BBC's had a pretty clear sense of what it's about and what it's trying to do. And I, I do think it's true that that's a more difficult thing in a divided country, particularly when you have something like Brexit framing the debate because, as you say, uh, and I think it's a perfectly fair point, the BBC was pretty slow to recognise that there might be a lot of people who took that view. So, And that's bound to undermine your confidence, I think. So, uh, yes, I do think it's a very difficult period. I think we're doing OK, but I do think it's a, I do think it's a difficult time. There seems to be an acceptance within the BBC's new management that some of the chief criticisms thrown over recent years and on the one hand, on the other hand, approach to impartiality and need to become more rooted in and to better understand thinking in the regions had some justification. Attempts are being made to redress the balance. But it strikes me the real test for the broadcaster will come when the next big idea comes surging in from what looks to those of us in metropolitan London like the political left field and swiftly becomes the mainstream. Striking the right tone and finding the right balance of arguments within the next great political debate may prove no easier than the last. In the meantime, 
there are plenty of choppy waters for the Beeb to navigate, even once the current licence fee settlement is out of the way. The arrival of the TV streaming market and the subsequent transformation in viewing habits has emboldened the BBC's critics to question the licence fee like never before. Nevertheless, it's hard to imagine a government, any government, actually wanting to do away with the corporation altogether. You may remember a strange period at the end of 2019 when Boris Johnson's newly emboldened Vote Leave government decided it was payback time for the supposedly Europhile BBC and banned its ministers from appearing on flagship shows like the Today programme and Newsnight. This standoff lasted for eh, about two months before a global pandemic struck and the government realised it rather needed the national broadcaster after all. It's a lesson you suspect each new occupant of Downing Street will learn in the end. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My producer this week was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.